Let's pray uh, to end our last time together. Heavenly Father, we've heard a lot today. We've heard a lot about the goodness of marriage, goodness of gender, being male and female. But we've also learned how sin distorts that, how it disrupts your good design. We've also learned how the gospel applies to our marriage to redeem what has been broken by the fall. Lord, you've also shown us in your word the importance of speech and how our words are really revealing what's going on in our hearts. And Lord, now we now think about what that oneness, both spiritually but also physically, is to depict in our relationship as husbands and wife. Lord, I pray you give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that this topic would not be a, a topic that we shy away from, but realizing that some of us may have had different experiences of shame and guilt, uh, struggle and sensitivity in this area. Lord, I pray that you would help remind us that you even speak to this area of sexual intimacy in our marriages. And I pray that your word would speak life and encouragement to each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Weddings were a frequent save-the-date item placed on the events calendar at my previous church in Washington. With the average member around 31 years of age, it was not uncommon for the pastoral staff to officiate up to 15 weddings a year in our building which didn't include weddings at destination sites. I always enjoyed those to get some free hotel and free food. Weddings can be an interesting time if you think about it. We plan for them usually six to 12 months in advance. Thousands of dollars are spent on dresses, suits, rings, flowers, decorations, pictures, venues, and yes, even napkins with our initials on them. The day is approached with a roller coaster of emotions from excitement by the bride and the groom, possible sadness from mom and dad, maybe happiness, depends on who you were. Others are rejoicing to see their good friend get married, while others are concerned that they may have made the wrong choice. Then the wedding ceremony takes place. Most weddings take Last anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes long, which much of that time is spent on the bridal party, a few words by the minister, depending on who's preaching, and a sweet kiss exchange by the bride and groom. But for Christians, when it's all said and done, the most important aspect of the wedding day should be what the wedding day is pointing towards, what the wedding day is to be ultimately getting you ready for. You see, the wedding there, the wedding day is exciting and it's fun and it's memorable, but the wedding day is to facilitate and focus on the commitment that the man and woman are making to one another through the vows they exchange. You see, the vows that a husband and wife exchange on their wedding day should never be repetitious words that we just fill up space in a service. Rather, they are the essence behind what makes a marriage 
a marriage. Vows are public declarations of how you'll be faithful to your spouse in the future, even before you know what life together will look like. These are personal commitments informed by God's word that draw the boundary lines that a new family unit has begun. Boundary lines that support the blessings of the marriage covenant that is being established. You see, from a Christian worldview, marriage isn't a contract like an agreement you make with an internet provider. Once the internet service seems outdated, slow, and a better offer comes along, just break the contract. Move on to something better, something more convenient, something that makes life easier or more enjoyable. Well, brothers and sisters, it's crucial that we're reminded this morning that marriage is not like a disposable contract that you can just edit. You can just throw away when you're tired of it. No, marriage is a covenant established by God and therefore under the sovereignty of God's authoritative word, he sets the conditions. He writes up the marriage contract, if you will. He determines when it begins and when it ends. And according to God's word, marriage is intended to be a permanent union until death. Hence, notice what Jesus said to the Pharisees who looked for loopholes in seeking unlawful divorces. We read in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Again, Jesus is quoting from where? Genesis, right? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let no man, let no woman separate. So what are the commitments? What are those public pledges that a husband and wife are held accountable to by God. Well, on your wedding day, you may have recited traditional wedding vows that would have basically been formed from the Church of England back during the Reformation, from Thomas Cramner possibly. I'll recite them as I recited to Julie. I, Julie, take you, or I, Blake, take you, Julie, Got to go back to my talk one. I am a man and my name is Blake. (laughs) Hi, Blake. Take you, Julie. I was super nervous on my wedding day. Still botch it up now. (laughs) Hi, Blake. Take you, Julie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. And then the husband typically says to lead, to love, and to cherish And then the wife says to love, cherish, and to submit or obey till death us do part according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge you myself. You know, after hearing those vows again, whether you said those exact vows or something like it, 
These are sobering promises. You'll never make a vow in this life to anyone like that ever again. Even in joining CCBC, as cultish as it may sound to have a church covenant, I think it's not. I think it solidifies commitment. But even joining a church will not touch the covenant between a husband and a wife. So what do these boundary lines or obligations seem to suggest about the marriage relationship itself? Let's say somebody came out of like planet Mars onto earth and were sitting in a traditional wedding and heard those vows for the first time. And they said, just hearing off the vows you heard, what would you say about the gravity of marriage? Well, they seem to suggest that marriage is designed by God to be an exclusive devotion to one other person. A devotion that is safe and secure, where transparency is prioritized and trust is protected. A devotion that only gets sweeter over time as this lifelong companionship is enjoyed between romantic lovers but also inseparable friends. A companionship where burdens are shared and blessings are celebrated and where sexual pleasure is enjoyed as God created it to be. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll start. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. We've looked at Genesis 2, 23, and 24 in different ways in our first talks, both in how the man delighted in the wife God gave him, verse 23, and in how the marriage covenant itself points to the mystery of the gospel, verse 24, that one flesh union. But I want to see these verses now in light of verse 25. Follow with me as I read. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In verse 24, we see the basis for why we call marriage a covenantal union. That is, two individuals, a man and woman, coming together through the vows they exchange. And then, the scriptures tell us, they are made one flesh. Two people coming together with a union that God has established. What God has joined together. Let no man separate. This one flesh union, then, is physically symbolized through the consummation of their marriage vows when their two bodies literally come together through sexual union. Hence, that's why verse 25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. You see, here in the creation account, we see a husband and wife 
enjoying the blessings of sexual union and marital intimacy without any sin in the world. No shame. No fears in the bedroom. No regrets from the past bringing into your marriage. No awkwardness. No selfishness. No lust that is outside God's boundaries. No reason to hide anything from God or one another. Unhindered joy, fellowship, and satisfaction in the goodness of God, in the goodness of your spouse, and in the goodness of sexual union. Which brings us to our topic for today. The last topic, last but not least, sexual intimacy in marriage. So for a little classroom participation, so if you need to put your mask down so I can hear you, why do you think God created sex? Give it your best shot. Don't be embarrassed. Why? For what purpose? Okay, reproduction, making babies. We got to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, any other reason? Enjoyment. Who said that? Enjoyment, pleasure, any other reason? Express love, a practical way to apply that love each other. Yeah, there's, there's really three reasons that I see in Scripture. Some people can make more implications, but I think these three are most clear. Number one, procreation, making babies, be fruitful and multiply. Number two, preservation. That's a little more what McCaylin's getting at. Marital unity and sexual purity. I'll speak more on that in a minute. And number three, pleasure, as my mother-in-law reminded us. Sexual satisfaction. Here we go. Number one, procreation. We read in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first reason right there in the opening page of Scripture for why God created sex was for married couples to make babies, to fill the earth, to give more of the earth, if you will, more image bearers for God to take pleasure and glory in to procreate and multiply men and women and form new family units, new households throughout the earth to carry out his mission for humanity, that mankind would exercise dominion over all of God's creation and bring it under God's rule. Now, why is this important? Well, if a man or woman enter into marriage without any desire to have children, I would say they should not get married. Let me explain. This is not speaking about inability or infertility. Inability is not the same as unwilling. There are certainly exceptions. Infertility, health issues for the man or woman, your age, widows with children from a previous spouse. There's a whole host of things that obviously 
would be qualified as not necessarily binding in that sense. But you would be amazed on how many men and women push off both marriage and even the thought of having children almost all together. They're going into marriage with the same bank account, share the same house, pursue the same dreams, and begin and end all with themselves. But right here in Genesis 1, God didn't just create Adam and Eve and say, you know, enjoy my creation until just whenever. I've given you something to do. I've put you on this earth for a purpose. And one purpose, not the only, but one purpose was that my image would spread upon the earth. Now, there are unique and humanly impossible situations that a couple desires children, but they can't have children of their own. And God shows tremendous sympathy and compassion on husbands and wives in that situation. You can also consider things like foster care and adoption. And God, by his grace, can still produce godly offspring through a mom and dad caring for whether biological or adopted children. This truth also applies that married couples should not view children like a burden just to tolerate or just some stage in life to get through before you can really enjoy life. Yes, no one would disagree that being in labor and raising children can be painful, taxing, disappointing, and hard. We see that in Genesis 3.16, right? In pain you shall bring forth children. But children are a gift from God. That's the Bible's perspective on children. Children are not a ball and chain. Children are not an inconvenience to your pursuits and dreams. Children are a gift from God. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. They're also a stewardship from God. How is God going to populate the earth? Well, through making babies. But how is he going to create a people for himself? He's going to make his name known by households fearing the Lord their God and seeing the next generation preach the same gospel to their generation. So having children is difficult and challenging and unique. That can be to everyone's life. They should be viewed not as a burden or a hindrance to life, but a part of the very fabric for that creation mandate. If you're married and without children, or maybe you know someone who is, and they've had a poor view of having children, I'd encourage you or for you to talk to them to seek counsel from a pastor or a godly counselor or maybe another couple that can give them encouragement as they're thinking about marriage. When I do premarital counseling, if any of your children or grandchildren ever come to me from premarital counseling, we talk about children in session four. And I talk about, I literally get them to fill out, what are your thoughts on having children? And if I see glaring red flags that I'm going to put them on the table, like I'll put you through the gauntlet. And one of the things I want to talk about is your view of children. If you desire to have children, but you're experiencing infertility, I'd encourage you to check out a book called Walking Through Infertility by Matthew Arbo. Walking Through Infertility by Matthew Arbo. It's a really good book. Helps you encourage and help others who might be in that situation. Number two, second reason for why God created sex, preservation. 
preservation. Now, I'm speaking about preservation in a positive sense in that it promotes peace and it strengthens the unity between a husband and wife. But I'm also speaking about it in a protective sense, almost like a safe over your goods, your money, your jewels, whatever it is. So first, let me think about that positive preservation of peacemaking and unity. So let's just get honest. Have you ever had one of those weeks or maybe months where you felt super distant from your spouse? Maybe you're getting on each other's nerves and you'd rather just kind of avoid them like the plague. It seems you can't have a conversation without feeling it's going to end in some argument. Or maybe you've just been so busy that you don't remember the last time you felt connected to each other. Well, one of the ways God keeps a husband and wife feeling connected is through having sex. You see, this one flesh union is consummated after the exchange of your vows on your wedding day because it's the oneness that was formed. The vows you exchange were these verbal proclamations, but the sexual union is you acting on those, coming together. You see, it is God's will that every husband and wife protect the oneness and closeness in their marriage. And sex is one of the ways to preserve that oneness. But like maintenance on a car, marriage also needs ongoing maintenance in order to function properly as God intended it. So have you ever been driving your car and those lights on the dashboard come on? Maybe you're like me and you just try to avoid it. You're like, well, I'll be fine. 20,000 more miles. Light keeps looking at me. Maybe another light pops back on. What usually happens? Well, eventually, if you don't deal with those lights, the car will stop working properly and more lights will come on. I think the same can be true in our marriages too. When God starts revealing different lights on the dashboard of what's going on and we need to address it, I think it's a good thing to ask some honest questions. When's the last time we prayed together? When's the last time we had an uninterrupted conversation where we both felt heard and understood? When's the last time I said I love you or I need you to my spouse? When's the last time we kissed on the lips or just held hands? When's the last time we had sex? It's been a week, two weeks, six months, so long ago you can't remember. You see, your sex life serves less like a thermostat and more like a thermometer on how your marriage is doing. In other words, sex won't necessarily turn up the temperature between you and your spouse, but your sex life, or lack thereof, may reveal how hot or cold your passion is for one another. Now, the answers to these questions that I just mentioned help you identify, you know, what is it that you need to work on? You know, prayer, conversation, going on a date, listening to one another, or coming together in sexual union. But one tool, I'm just laying out the plain facts, to strengthen the unity amidst those other things is coming together in sexual union. Now, sex is not going to be the answer to your problems. 
In fact, many of your problems may be the result of wrong views of sex and abuses of it. So sex is not the magical bullet. It's not going to erase all your problems. If your sex life increased by 10 times with your spouse, that doesn't mean the other issues just kind of go away. It's not a silver bullet. The Spirit of God has to do a work in someone's heart to deal with what really is dealing with them. God created sex to preserve our marriage by keeping us feeling connected and maintaining oneness and peace. But God also, and listen, this is where a lot of married couples at the very beginning have no clue to this. Year 10, year 15, year 20, they know this. Sex within marriage protects your marriage from sexual immorality. That is, illicit desires for sexual temptations that come from the outside to destroy your marriage on the inside. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This would be an important one to look at because I think this topic on sex, this section gets totally overlooked often. First Corinthians 6, I'm going to start in verse 18, First Corinthians 6, verse 18, and I'm going to read to chapter 7, verse 5, because if you want to read the context, you really got to start all the way back to chapter 5, but I'm going to kind of catch us up to speed so we don't spend that much time. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Within this section, the Apostle Paul is warning the Corinthians about returning to their former immoral lifestyle. Uh, They came out of homosexual backgrounds, promiscuous sex, prostitution, all sorts of rampant wickedness that, honestly, we would still see here today in our own culture. And Paul is saying, listen, don't adopt the godless behavior of the world around you. Flee sexual immorality. Run. Did you notice in the New Testament when we deal with sin, Paul will say, put your sin to death, confess your sins, 
resist the devil, hand-to-hand combat and spiritual warfare, all these kind of like fighting words. But when he speaks about lust and sexual immorality, he says, book it. Run. Don't even get in the same room with it. Have nothing to do with it. Get it out of your life. Literally, if you have to flee a physical location, run for your life. I think there's a reason for that. If you read throughout the scriptures, you read throughout history, just watch news. How many people have we read about? How many people do we know? Maybe you're even here today. And you bought into the lie of an illicit relationship that God forbidden. I guarantee today you would say, yeah, in the moment it was pleasurable. But today it's left so many scars. It only leads regret. If you do marriage God's way, if you have sex God's way, if you think about your life as a man or woman God's way, you're going to end up with the joy and peace that God can give. But when you go outside those boundaries, when I go outside those boundaries, it's only going to lead regret and scars and pain in our life. But here he's also instructing husbands and wives specifically on the importance of sexual relations, listen, as a powerful deterrent against sexual immorality. I just want you to notice four things very quickly. Number one, sex is exclusively for married couples. I know that's a no-brainer to some of you, but you go talk to the average youth or young person today, they're not taught that. Sex is just whatever you want, whenever you feel like it, with whoever you want. But sex is exclusively for married couples. Look at verses 2 and 3. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Shacking up living together, cohabitation, is forbidden in the Scriptures. It's very clear. Husband and wife are mentioned, not just two people who happen to pay the same phone bill. Number two, sex is designed as an opportunity to serve and satisfy your spouse's desires. Look at verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife, not take, give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You know, in our home, Julie drives a 2012 Honda Pilot, I drive a 2019 Ford F-150. In one sense, that's Julie's car. She drives it most days. The kids are in there most days. And I'm generally in my truck most days. But guess what? She's got the keys to my truck. And I've got the keys to her car. So in one sense, it's not my truck and that's not her car. We actually own both cars. In the same way, that's what it's like of a marriage covenant. You've got your body, and your spouse has their body, but when you are married, a part of the way you serve and selflessly love your spouse is by recognizing that your body actually belongs to your spouse, and their body belongs to you. Sex can be an opportunity to show selflessness to satisfy your spouse. Number three, 
sex should be abstained only by mutual consent and or providential hindrances. You see right there in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Listen, the list could go on and on. You could be sick. You have the flu. You've got COVID. Uh, your back really hurts. You know, whatever the issue is, love your spouse by understanding where they're physically currently at. A deployment. Uh, men and women might be separated for six months at a time, and they're unable to enjoy this gift together. A newborn child. There is a literal separation. You can't have uh, sexual union for a season for those purposes of healing and et cetera and so forth. There's other reasons too. But that mutual agreement is also a really good text that smashes selfishness. So if you're demanding sex from your spouse, that's the opposite of what this text is saying. That's not selflessness, that's selfishness. And selfishness will destroy your marriage bed. So the mutual agreement means you got to talk about it. You got to think together. You got to hear where each other are coming from. Number four, Satan will attack your marriage if your sex life is unprotected. This is like never spoken about in most sermons I've ever heard on this topic. Look at verse five. We just got done talking about fleeing sexual immorality, selflessly giving yourself over to one another, realizing your body's not ultimately yours, mutually talking through things to know when it's appropriate and not appropriate to come together. But then he says, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A pastor friend of mine named Zach Schlegel once said this, Satan will do whatever he can to get you in the bed before you're married, and Satan will do whatever he can to get you out of the bed once you're married. One time I said that, a lady goes, ah! in the middle of a church service, I'm like, okay. But the point there is, is, is a really good image. Why is sex so enticing for unmarried folks to engage in? Well, because they want the benefits of it without the commitment. They want the enjoying part of it, but not the hard work it is to live in a marriage. And Satan will put that bait out there. He knows that. But then once you get married, he wants you to realize it's going to be stale, boring, painful, unimportant. It's just for making babies, and that's it. And it'll get you out of the bed. And that's right there out of the text. This is not just Dr. Phil's advice. <laughs> this is not just kind of old man wisdom or old woman wisdom that we should just consider. This is spiritual war. Satan hates your marriage. If you're a Christian wanting to honor the Lord with your marriage, you best bet when this little conference is over, he's on the prowl. He's coming after me, he's coming after you, and he can come through a lot of different baits. So take what I'm hearing, you're hearing today from God as a warning to take this serious. Satan can attack through pornography, prostitution, flirtatious relationships at work or at the gym, loneliness, 
or even the subtle emotional connection you make with someone at church. Even great men and women of God have fallen into grotesque sin when they let their guard down. Think of David and Bathsheba. Men, you are the only man on this planet that God has authorized, I love using this word, authorized to serve and satisfy your wife's sexual desires. Have you ever thought about that? Some of you are like, I'm up for that task. You're the only man. There's no backup. There's no one else in line. You, sir, carry that mantle. But don't abuse that privilege. And don't neglect that privilege. Love your wife in a way that makes her feel treasured and desired. Not like some pornographic image you've looked at before. Have eyes and affections only for her. Ladies, you are the only woman on this planet that God has authorized to serve and satisfy your husband's sexual desires. Do not abuse that privilege and do not neglect that privilege. Love your husband in a way that makes him feel treasured and desired. And likewise, have eyes and affections only for him. Friends, let me go ahead and say this too, because I care about my marriage and I care about yours. If you find yourself going out of your way to bump into that certain someone that you find attractive, or you find yourself dressing a certain way when you get up in the morning to draw that attention of that person you're attracted to, stop. Stop. Repent. Share that temptation with someone else. Share that you are attracted to that person and you don't want to be. You want to be a man or woman above reproach. This is at your workplace when your spouse isn't with you. This is at the gym when your spouse is not with you. This is at church when your spouse is not with you. Ask them to hold you accountable. You might say, Brother Blake, why? That's a little over-unique specification. Adultery never starts in the bedroom. Adultery always starts in the heart. And it begins by longing after the attention of another man or woman that isn't your spouse. So do everything you can to squash that illicit fantasy now. Whether you've got to get off social media, cut off certain friends from your friend list or whatever, whatever that even means anymore because you're looking at an old girlfriend or looking at an old boyfriend and checking on how they're doing, if that's a temptation for you, get rid of it. Run, flee, abstain. These are words to protect you and protect me. I praise God for men in my life who have challenged me in these areas, and I pray that I could be a blessing to you in this as well. Pray for me and Julie, not to be self-serving, but pray for me and Julie. If, if the enemy is going to be an attack on a church, he's going to go where he can do the most damage. He's going to go after the one who can split open a whole church. He's going to go after the leadership. So pray for me. Pray for our future elders and their wives that we would be above reproach. And make that a prayer for each other. When you hang out together, 
Flip your burgers, eat your barbecue, have the good time together. But pray for each other as married couples to stay faithful to one another. We can do that proactively by pursuing also being satisfied with our spouse. Which leads to our last point. Sex was created by God for our what, Sheila? Pleasure. Number three, this shouldn't be too difficult to grasp. Christians don't have to be kind of prude and awkward and blush every time they hear the word sex. No. I actually make married couples say it out loud in my office just so we can get past the awkwardness. Sex is pleasurable. When done God's way with love for your spouse, being patient and gentle where, where they're at, it can be very pleasurable. In fact, the Bible turns up the volume on how pleasurable it can be. In Hebrew literature, the words intoxicated and sick with love is used for a husband and wife enjoying each other. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Listen. That's not some Arkansas translation. That's the Bible. That's awesome. And so I'm going to get an email probably on Monday. Hey, we'll be doing a sermon series in Song of Solomon. I don't know if I have uh, the courage yet to do it, but I'm, maybe one day. When you read the Song of Solomon, for example, you see the erotic and romantic experience between a husband and wife enjoying one another. They're kissing one another, caressing one another, flirting with one another, and adoring one another. This is not perverted. This is beautiful in God's sight when it's done God's way. This is the aroma of the good gift of sexual pleasure and romance within a marriage. And But brothers and sisters, let's just get honest. Unless you're coming off your honeymoon... All of us can attest to the fact that the flares of hot passion and robust sex life isn't something that comes easily in our marriages. Give marriage some time, and we all quickly find out how much work it takes just to communicate with each other. Even just difficulty making time for each other. Even trying to have a train of thought without being distracted by something. So let me offer a few words of encouragement as you seek to grow in cultivating romance and sexual satisfaction in marriage. Number one, the most obvious, talk about sex. Some of you need to talk less about it, but some of you need to talk more about it. 
So how often do you and your spouse talk about sex? We just got to talk about communication, and this is a part of it. Do you talk about it? If so, what do you share? Does it end up helping your enjoyment of sex or just cause more arguments? So talk about what you enjoy and don't enjoy. Talk about what turns you on and talk about what turns you off. Have you ever asked your spouse, how many times a week are you anticipating for this to happen? What would you like to have? Or maybe even a more sensitive level. Do you have any fears about sex that I can be aware of? Anything that makes this awkward or uncomfortable or hard for you? Any struggles with guilt and shame that I can just shower and remind you of God's grace of and my patience and my love towards you? Listen, you can't expect things to be hot in the bedroom if things are cold in everyday conversation. Let me say that again. You can't expect to be hot in the bedroom if things are cold in everyday conversation. If you're experiencing challenges with any form of sexual impotency, impotency or the effects of emotional or physical abuse, whether that's in the past or present, you know, please talk to someone. If you're a member of this church, I'm your pastor. I want to walk with you through that. And if you feel more comfortable talking to a woman, I can help you find another sister to talk to. Don't fight that fight alone. A little more on the lighter side. Identify the oven and microwave. Identify the oven and microwave. Men and women are wired differently. And it's not always the same for every couple. Men and women can be inclined to varying degrees of sexual desire. Some can be ready at any given moment, just push the button, ready to go. Maybe you're the microwave in the marriage. You don't take very much time to be, quote, in the mood. Others are like the oven. Takes a little time. Got to do a little preheating the oven. Thoughtful conversation. Setting the mood through dinner or holding hands. Having plenty of rest beforehand. Take time to learn one another's general sexual makeup and show understanding and be considerate in how God has made your spouse. Number three, a little even more lighter on the side, a balanced diet of mac and cheese and filet mignon. This might be the one thing you remember. We need to all have realistic expectations when engaging in sex with our spouse. Sometimes sex will be slowly enjoyed, long-lasting, mutually satisfying, and memorable. That's filet mignon. Takes longer to prepare and cook, and generally is enjoyed over a long meal. But you don't eat filet mignon every day. That gets expensive. And who has that kind, of, that kind of time on their hands? That's why we have instant mac and cheese. Quick, easy, in a hurry. You can do your own creativity on that one. I don't need to elaborate much. It's quick, hits the spot, meets the knee, keeps things fresh, and you keep it moving. Having a balanced diet in your food is the same in your sex life. Have a little bit of a spectrum. You can change mac and cheese to like, I don't know, someone give me another ice, instant oatmeal. Whatever. Okay, well, you and your spouse, those can be key words so that you can talk about the menu. Again, expectations can be crucial for not clashing in an argument all the time. 
date nights and getaways. Date nights and getaways. Every stage of marriage comes with freedoms and challenges. Depending on your health, your kids' ages, job and financial situations, the ability to be alone with your spouse will change from season to season. But the basic point stays the same. Husbands and wives should intentionally plan to spend quality time with one another and some of those quality times cultivating friendship and sexual intimacy with one another. So for Julie and I, we generally try to go on a date probably once every two to three weeks for maybe two to three hours, just depends on what's going on. Maybe go to a restaurant. Uh, Over the years, definitely not 2020, uh, we've begun having a one-night staycation every couple of months where we just don't have the immediacy and the three o'clock wake-ups that we got last night with young children. Uh, Even in recent years, we've thought uh, two days away, all the way up to five days away. Those don't happen very often uh, because of our kids' ages, but we've gone to Jacksonville, Florida, Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, We even went to Mexico to celebrate a delayed 10-year anniversary. Just be creative. What do you like to do? Be flexible. Whatever you got to do, you got to put it on the calendar. If you're going to make it happen, you got to take some initiative to carve it out. Diversify. This is probably going to make Julie blush. Diversify the time of day to make love. Don't be overly predictable or even the place. Leave that up to you. Intentionally plan for a quiet evening or a weekend away. Years ago, Julie and I were in our first few years of marriage. I was pastoring Quaco Baptist Church. Little Noah got very sick with a fever, went to the hospital. He stayed overnight. Me and Julie, of course, being new parents, we're just exhausted. We're fearful. Anyway, Noah ends up being okay. Then Mr. Edwards showed up. Mr. Edwards, a burly countryman. Mr. Edwards was not afraid to say it like it is and to say what's on his mind. Mr. Edwards comes to the hospital. He's showing mercy and compassion and understanding. He's about 60, 65. And he looks at me and he goes, with Julie standing right there, brother, when's the last time you and Julie got away? I said, well, I mean, brother, we just had a baby like 11 months ago. I got two jobs. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm talking, when's the last time y'all got away for some good old hotel sex? (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Edward? You know, just get away, pay some good money, get everybody else to clean it up and come back home. I'm sitting there in the hospital, dumbfounded. Mr. Edward just shooting it straight. When's the last time you had some good old hotel sex? Well, you think about that for your own marriage. Mr. Edward has stayed with me with that advice. Some tips, my friends. Have good hygiene. Take a bath. Spray cologne on, perfume, body spray, body wash doesn't hurt. Just make sure spouse likes what you have on. Because if you stink, it's going to really hurt your game plan. Practice, practice, practice. Give it time. Show grace. Don't look at this like an athletic competition. It's not a performance. You're learning together. It's learning to show love with your best friend. And guess what? If God is merciful, you'll have the rest of your life to practice. Don't view it like some competition or some way to size up your spouse in some unrealistic way. 
With all that being said, you've heard everything from ovens and microwaves, mac and cheese to filet mignon, and Mr. Edwards' advice. It's good to be reminded that sex is a gift, but it's not God. A spouse, if you're not careful, can turn sex into a little idol, and it will eventually let you down. Getting your sex life right cannot be separated from your relationship with God. And it certainly cannot be separated from your daily love and respect for your spouse. Older couples, I'm not going to call you old. I said older. You know who you are. You already know this truth very well. The longer you've been married, the more you realize the small things matter more than the big ones. The smile across the room. The tears shed together when you're sad. The extended hug, the random phone call or text message that says, I was just thinking about you. I just prayed for us, and I thank God for you. These and many other things are what set the stage for the fruits of a mutually enjoyable sex life with your spouse. It's the small things that matter. It's the little things that are adding and contributing to the health of your friendship and communication, and your spiritual growth together. Now, we've heard a lot today, right? You've heard three sermons, hour-long apiece, on a theology of marriage. The foundation of our marriage must be built upon God's Word. We've learned some about communication in marriage, how and why our words really matter. And we've learned a few things about sexual intimacy in marriage, how God created sex for the purposes of procreation, preservation, and pleasure. Wherever you find yourself out today, I don't know how you're going to respond to these talks. I don't know if this has been new for you, challenging for you, convicting for you, affirming for you. Maybe a lot to take in. Whether you're on the mountaintops of marital bliss or in the valleys of marital distress, look back to the covenant God has made with you through Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, you are already infinitely loved, regardless if your spouse shows you that love. In Christ, you are permanently accepted, even if your spouse at times rejects your love. All while you are in Christ, you are already deeply known and eternally secure with him. You see, the gospel gives shape to our marriage, and the gospel motivates us to love and honor our spouses according to God's wise design. So friends, in what ways today are you being challenged to remain faithful to your marriage vows? In what ways do you realize you need help from others in becoming the spouse God has called you to be? We had to cancel the date night for tomorrow night because of uh, the snow. But I want you to get together with your group. And if you didn't sign up, you can still join one and I can put you in one. I want this to be the beginning of a beautiful pattern for our church of married couples of all different years, of all different maturities, of all different varying degrees of joys and sorrows to come together and help each other be the husband or wife God has called us to be. Spend time today. You'll have plenty of time on Monday if we're snowed in. Reflect back on what you've heard. This will be recorded. Listen to it again. 
Uh, Pray to God and share with your spouse how you want to repent of something. Maybe God's convicted you of something today. And ask them for forgiveness where you know you maybe have failed them in some way. So whether you've been married for one year, 10 years, 40 years, it's good to be reminded of this biblical truth. Falling in love may have drawn you to your spouse, but committing yourself to love is what keeps you faithful to your spouse. Falling in love may have drawn you to your spouse, but committing yourself to love is what keeps you faithful to your spouse. May these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer encourage every married couple here today. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken on these important topics that speak directly to us as men and women, husbands and wives. God, use what is said today that was true to build up, equip, and encourage your people. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.